Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> um, we don't typically uh, have a, a specific sermon for specific days like Mother's Day and Father's Day and things like that, but we are grateful that, that you have come, those of you who are visiting, uh, mothers that are visiting in some instances, and uh, so we're, we're glad that you are here with us this morning, and I hope that even though we don't have a message specifically tailored towards you or in, in what is often the case targeted at you, um, this is hopefully a message of hope this morning and one that you will walk away rejoicing in the wonder that is salvation. The wonder that is given to us in Jesus Christ through his death, his burial, his resurrection, through his all-sufficient merit his perfect life, everything that he has done to give us salvation. So I hope that you, you walk away this morning uh, hopeful and joyful and rejoicing in what Jesus has done for you. And, and I hope that you have a good lunch afterwards with your family. Our passage this morning is Hebrews chapter number six. The title of the message is True Faith Revealed. True Faith Revealed, and I've got a surprise for you. The big idea is about seven words. Yeah, seven words. All right, so all you note takers, you can be, be happy this morning. The big idea is this true faith is revealed by fruitful endurance. True faith is revealed by fruitful endurance. If you're not familiar with this passage, um, this is one of the more difficult, if not the most difficult, and controversial passages in the New Testament. Um, and as we preach from it this morning, we'll actually take the next two weeks to go through it. Um, because this, there is such a, a large controversy regarding this passage, we want to uh, take the time to first address the controversy, and then next week we'll come back and we'll take a look at the context. What is the author's intent? Why is he even putting this information here? Um, and we'll, we'll see that a little bit uh, here this morning as well, but we'll, we'll come back and, and actually dig into that next week. But this morning I wanted to focus on the controversy itself. And as we read, read through that, it's very possible that you, you already know what the controversy is. Maybe even uh, looking at the, the sermon title and the big idea, you might know what the controversy is. But the controversy that we have here really is focused on about three to five verses right in the middle of our passage. And I'm going to read them again very briefly. It says here, starting in verse six, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to content. <clears throat> now, this is a passage that has had a lot of writing done on it. Um, there, I read a lot of, a lot of stuff. I, I knew I was going to preach this several weeks ago, so I've been reading a lot of different things. There's a lot of uh, opinion on this passage. There's a lot of uh, exposition on this passage. There's a lot of writing on this passage. And, and there are kind of four main views on this passage and what these verses are talking about. And this morning, I'm not going to go through all the views and, and tell you why I think they're wrong. We're just going to go through the view that, that I believe is correct, that I believe is best and most biblical. Um, and so we're going to go through that view and, and show why. And as we go through that, I think you'll see why the others don't, don't really fit. But the first one that we see oftentimes is, um, is one that I actually hadn't heard of, but is, seems to be fairly popular. And that is that this passage is not talking about salvation at all, but rather it's talking about rewards. And that you can lose your rewards if you, uh, if you don't stay faithful. Um, I, I don't think that that really fits the passage itself, the context of the passage, really the context of the book at all. I think that's just kind of trying to avoid the problem. Uh, and so that's why I disagree with that one. Maybe I will tell you why I disagree with them. We'll see. Uh, the second one is this, that this is a hypothetical situation, but it would never really happen. Um, 
again, that's, this is an effort to try to, to get away from the controversy, right? Well, it's just hypothetical. You know, the author knows it wouldn't, wouldn't really happen. He's just trying to scare them, right? Um, well, we don't really see that <laughs> in scripture that I can think of ever. Uh, maybe there's a place, but it's pretty obvious when the authors give us hypothetical situations. And so there's nothing in this context that tells us, hey, I'm giving you a hypothetical here. Usually there's a, there's a warning or, or it's a parable or something tells us from the context that this is a hypothetical. So I would disagree with that as well. The third one, and, and probably the largest controversial one, is this. That this is a saved person, this is speaking of a saved person who falls away from the faith, forfeiting salvation once actually received. <clears throat> now, there are... Uh, there are a couple of pieces to this. Some people believe that you can lose your salvation through disobedience, through some sort of sin. Uh, this passage obviously specifically talks about falling away. It's not talking about sin. Um, and so the idea here is that you can either lose your salvation by, by sinning out of it or by forfeiting it, by falling away, by choosing to go away. You had salvation. You had everything that comes with salvation. And then you forfeit it. You walk away from it and you say, I don't want it anymore. All right. And one of the reasons why that is popular is because of the warning that we see here, that it is impossible to bring those who do this back to repentance. And we'll look at that a little bit this morning, but also more next week as to what he's actually talking about there. But the final uh, option here that we have or, or opinion is this, that this is a false convert who leaves the faith through apostasy. Uh, this is the one that I would stand very firm on, and this is the one that we'll look at here this morning. Part of the reason why this, there's a controversy is we have these first few verses here in four through six that sound like a believer, do they not? They sound like someone who is part of the church, someone that we would interact with on a, on a very weekly basis, that, that they know all the right words, they say all the right things, they, they even exhibit um, good works. They, they do things that, that look like believers should be acting. And, and so it's, it's easy for us to see why people would believe, just given these few verses, that it might be possible to lose your salvation or to forfeit your salvation. It's kind of the idea that if it has a, a bill like a duck and has webbed feet like a duck and lays A's like a duck, it must be a duck, right? Unless you've seen a platypus. Has all, all those same characteristics of a duck, but it's not a duck. It's a mammal. And so we have to be careful by, when we look at this passage, to just assume that this is talking about somebody who is a true believer, especially given the context that we have. So this morning, I want to look at the context. And, and this is a very important thing. We don't just say context is important because we like to use it to prove our own points. All right, Context is important because it helps us define what we're actually hearing and reading and seeing. There are basically three different types of context that we're concerned about. We're, we're concerned about textual context, what's in the, the Word of God, the written words, the cultural context, and the historical context. I have a little saying that I like to, that I like to say. I think I put a slide in for it. It says this, if your proof text ignores context, it should be suspect. All right? If your proof text ignores context, it should be suspect. You should really think about whether or not you have the right understanding if you go through the context and you see that your understanding doesn't match with what the author is trying to communicate. And I believe that's what we have here in this concept that some have that you can lose your salvation. Textual concept, context would be something like this phrase, John is a beast. That could give you some interesting connotations. Could mean that he's an actual beast, a, a, a an animal, a ferocious person. But if you put that in the context of maybe a quote about John being on the basketball court and how he towers over everybody else, well, now you have a different understanding of what that phrase says. We have, that's a textual context. A cultural context would be very simply the word cool. A hundred years ago, you said the word cool, it meant 
not hot, right? Today, if you say the word cool, well, maybe I'm behind the times, I don't know. But when I was growing up, when you said the word cool, it meant something was, was neat or awesome. Maybe those are behind the times too, I don't know. Uh, but, but the word cool has a different understanding as we look at the cultural context in which it is stated, all right? And then historical context. If I tell you that you need to all be going out and washing one another's feet, that's a weird thing to say in our modern day American culture, in our modern day uh, historical context. But in Jesus' time, when he told them that they were to wash one another's feet, it meant something to them. It, there, was, there was not only the symbolism that we pull from it, but there was something that was, that was tangible to them. They understood what he was talking about because there was a historical context there. And so as we come to these verses, we need to understand the context that we're dealing with. Um, another good example is the word cosmos. The word cosmos means world. John, the apostle John uses this word cosmos over 70 times in his gospel. And he uses it anywhere between six, seven to 10 different ways, depending on the context. In some places, it's talking about our physical earth. In some places, it's talking about Satan's dominion or kingdom. Some places, it's talking about humanity as a whole. Some places, only the wicked enemies of God. In some places, it's referring to a large group of people, such as when the Pharisees said, all the world has gone after him. When they were up in arms about Jesus and people following after, well, obviously not all the world had because they weren't, Right? So it's talking about a, a large group of people in that instance. And it's also used to refer to the general public as opposed to a private group of people. And so we have to understand the context of a passage to make sure that we understand what the passage is actually saying. Because if we just come to a passage and we read these words on the page and we say, I think this means that. Or sometimes we go, well, the obvious meaning is this. Sometimes the obvious meaning is not the obvious meaning if we don't take into account the context of the passage. So we want to make sure that we're understanding the context in order to understand what is actually being said in this passage. We're going to look at basically three textual contexts this morning. The first one will be the context of the passage itself. Hebrews chapter 6 verses 1 through 12. And actually, really, it starts in chapter 5, uh, as Eric started us last week. But we'll look at arguments from the passage itself. We'll look at arguments from the book so far. This is one of the reasons why we preach through books from start to finish uh, most of the time, because we need to understand where the author is going. What has the author already said? Because that helps us understand what the author means when he says specific things later on. So we'll look at the arguments from the passage, arguments from the book, and then lastly, arguments from the New Testament as a whole. So let's look at the argument from the passage first. First thing I'd like you to see is that true faith is revealed by evident fruit. True faith is revealed by evident fruit. As we said on the surface, it's easy to see why this seems to be talking about true believers, is it not? There's a lot of good things that are said about them. It's said that, that they have been enlightened, that they have tasted the heavenly gift, that they have shared in the Holy Spirit, that they have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. A lot of good things said about these people. But I want to look at the comparison of the disposition of the people he's talking about. There's, there's three comparisons here as we look at the context. And that is, the first one is the comparison of their disposition. We see their first disposition is one of, of enjoyment, right? Of participation. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an experience that they are having with everyone else. If you look at each of those phrases, you don't see anything in there about things that they have done. We don't see anything about obedience. Don't see anything about faith. All we see are experiences, right? Look, listen to those again. It says, who have been enlightened, all right? Who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, 
have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. These are all experiences that these people have had. And if we're being honest, anybody in this room could have an experience of any of those things this morning, whether you are a believer in Jesus Christ or not. And so it's important for us to see that there's a comparison here of this disposition. They've, they've got all of these experiences and they're enjoying all of these experiences until something happens, until they fall away, until they fall away. And then the disposition changes, does it not? What does it say? It's impossible. Why? To restore them or what? To restore them again to repentance to restore them again to repentance, to bring them back to true faith in Jesus Christ. Why is it impossible? Well, what are they doing? Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. There's a difference here. Something has changed. Where once they were enjoying the, the blessings and the goodness and, the, and the, everything that, that we enjoy here when we, when we gather together, now they are not only just not participating anymore, what are they, do, they doing? They're actually holding up Jesus Christ with contempt. It's just like they were out there when Jesus Christ was crucified and they're saying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. They're spitting on him and they're calling him names and they're telling the world, no, he's not really who he claimed to be. Have you ever known anyone like that? It's amazing to me that, that this seems to be more common than not with those who fall away. More commonly than not, they don't just ignore Christianity. They go after it. They attack it. Because everything that they have experienced really meant nothing. In fact, if you talk to them, they'll talk a lot about their experiences. They'll talk about how, man, you know, at one time they, they thought that Jesus was really cool and they felt like they had a relationship with them. And they, you know, I'd, I'd go out and walk in the, in the, on the parks and I'd just enjoy time with Jesus and all experiential. There's no meat. What did we just talk about last week? You, you all are, are on milk. You need, to be, you need to be able to eat meat. Well, why is it that they can't eat meat? Maybe because they're not even saved. And they're experiencing all these things as part of a church. Why is it oftentimes that children grow up in a church and they don't see the need to come to Christ on their own because they've been a part of a church their whole life growing up. Well, I've always been in the church. Surely I'm a Christian. It's because they've experienced these things that, that feel like they're part of the body. But in reality, they do not have true faith. So we have a comparison of their disposition. Secondly, we have a comparison of the production Comparison of their production, in verses 7 and 8, we see another comparison dealing with land. And he starts off here in verse 7, For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. So we see first that there, are, there is an experience that both of these types of land receive. What is it? The land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it. Both of these lands have received the same experience. They've had the same experience. They've had the blessing of rain come upon them. But yet one field, as we see this comparison, it says, but that's typically a, a conjunction that's used to compare, not continue. It's a comparison, right? So he says, we've got this, this land that is producing good fruit because of the, the rain that was on it. But then we've got land who does not produce cr good fruit. In fact, it says it produces the opposite of good fruit, does it not? It produces thorns and thistles, and it's worthless. So the result, the fruit that is being compared between one group who has received the rain, one land that has received the rain and has produced fruit that is beneficial, and then other land that has received the rain and has produced 
thorns and thistles. Not just no fruit, but the, the antithesis of fruit. Going against fruit. Again, we see this collide between those who are true believers and those who have fallen away, though they've experienced the same thing. Not only do we have a comparison of disposition and production, but we also in this passage have a comparison with salvation. I think this is the most obvious part of this, of this context. When we look at the fruit between those who have fallen away and those who endure, the writer here compares it with salvation. Look down in verse number nine. Though we speak in this way, in what way? All these things that we've been talking about. Though we speak about all these things, this, these experiences and the falling away, and then we, we speak about this land that, has, that some has produced good and some has produced thistles and thorns. Though we speak in this way, what? Another contrast. Yet, in your case, beloved, we feel sure of what? Of better things of better things. But not only just that you have better things in these people, what? Things that belong to salvation. That word belong there literally has the idea of, of holding, taking, taking hold of, of, of holding fast, belonging to, having, owning. That's the idea here. It says, even though we're talking about these things, we feel sure of better things. What kinds of better things? Things that belong to salvation. The author is very clearly showing that what he is talking about in the first few verses that we looked at is not the same as what he's expecting of them who have salvation. Better things that belong to salvation. So the fruit that we have. And it's interesting. He says better things. Obviously he's looking at the fruit that he's talked about so far of those who have fallen away. They've experienced a lot of things, but their fruit at the end of the day is that of coming back and, and lifting up Jesus Christ with contempt. That is their fruit. And he says, but we see better fruit of you fruit that belongs to salvation. So even in this few short verses of, this, verses of this passage, if we're careful to look at the context, if we're careful to understand everything that is being said, not just look at these two verses that give us a nice description of a nice person, but if we look at the entire context and we see the author himself repeatedly going back and making his own comparisons, he can't be talking about somebody who is a believer because he compares it with a believer. So true faith is revealed by evident fruit. Let's take a look at the argument from the book so far. And, and many of these verses will be things that you will remember. There'll be things that we've, we've already talked about. So I'll try to go through them quickly. But point number two, true faith is revealed by enduring belief. True faith is revealed by enduring belief. So we have the immediate context that we've looked at. Let's look at what the author has said from the beginning till now in reference to this question. This question of belief in Jesus Christ. This question of salvation and those who have it and those who do not. I think it's interesting for us to note here, I mentioned it earlier, but I, it's important as we look at the, rest of, at the rest of Hebrews, to notice again in that list of experiences that there is no mention of faith. And when you read the, the, the writings of those who would, um, who would hold this view, um, you know, one of the things that they, they say is, well, because one of the arguments is there, it doesn't say that they're saved. It doesn't say that they're saved. And, and the argument against that is, well, look at what it says, right? It certainly sounds like somebody who's saved. So do we always have to say this person is saved every time? Or can we describe someone who is saved? That's, that's sort of the argument. But I think there's an even more important argument than it's saying that they were saved. And that is that everything in there points to my experience and not faith in Christ. 
In fact, in the first verse of our, of our passage for this week and next week, he says, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. That's the foundation. The foundation of salvation is faith and repentance. Faith and towards Jesus Christ, towards God, because of what Jesus Christ has done. Repentance and turning away from, from pleasing ourselves and pursuing ourselves and going after God and pleasing Him and worshiping Him and obeying Him. And yet we don't see anything in this description that gives us a mark of faith. But what have we seen all the way through Hebrews so far? That faith is necessary. Faith is necessary. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. What's the warning there? You've heard the gospel. If you go down, again, if you remember, we went down through the next few verses, the context. What is it that we have heard? We've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and God has made it very clear through signs and wonders and miracles. He's done all of these things to prove to us that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true. And what is the warning? Make sure that you pay close attention to it, that you're constantly thinking about it, that it's, it, it means something to you, that you don't drift away from it. Chapter three, verse six says this, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Again, when we looked at this, we noted the fact that <clears throat> this statement here, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope, is a future event. It is something that must continue to the end. And what does it say? It says that we are his house if. It doesn't say we will be his house if says, we know that we are his house if we continue. Hebrews 3 verse 12, take care brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. What is it that leads us to fall away from God? An evil, unbelieving heart. That doesn't sound like someone who has been redeemed. Someone who has had their heart of stone taken out and a heart of flesh given to them. Verse 14 of chapter three, for we have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to what? To the end. Again, we have come. And the evidence of that is if we hold it to the end. Verse 19, so we see that they were unable, speaking of the, the Israelites, remember, who did not go into the promised land. We see that they were unable to enter. Why? Because of unbelief. Hebrews 4.2, for the good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them. Why? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Same experience. This is, I have no doubt the author is thinking of, of the Israelites once again from chapter four as he's writing chapter six. He's not thinking in chapters, right? And so as he's thinking about the things that, that have already been said, he's pointing back in his mind and he's thinking about those who have experienced all the wonders that God had given the children of Israel. Being set free from Egypt, being, crossing the Red Sea, going through the wilderness and the provision that God had given them and coming all the way up to where God wanted them. And yet, because of unbelief, they had all the experiences as of everyone else. They even had the physical claim to be a part of Israel. But yet they could not enter his rest because of unbelief. Even in this, in this passage here in verses 11 and 12, we see that, um, that there is a, an emphasis put on endurance. Verse 11 says, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope when? Until the end. What, it's interesting, he says there, the full assurance. It's an interesting word. 
full assurance, not hopeful assurance, not maybe if I can, if I can grasp on long enough, full assurance of hope until the end. Verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. We could go on in in Hebrews in chapter 10. We're going to see another statement and warning about enduring faith. In chapter 11, we have a whole chapter dedicated to faith. You think faith is important to the author of Hebrews. And yet when he describes the people who fallen away, he does not describe them as people of faith. Experiences, yes, but faith, no. True faith is revealed by evident fruit. It's revealed by enduring belief. And lastly, true faith is revealed by expected apostasy. True faith is revealed by expected apostasy. I'm going to say a phrase here and then we'll kind of break it down and look at what the rest of the New Testament has to say about this concept. Apostasy is expected because false converts exist and are drawn away by false teaching or revealed through testing. Apostasy is expected. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 says this, Now the Spirit, who's that? The Holy Spirit, right? Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. So he, he says, Paul's writing to Timothy and he says, remember... Or you should know that the Holy Spirit has said this. The Holy Spirit has declared that there will be those who walk away from the faith. And that word there is the Greek word for apostasy. That's where we get this idea of falling away, of walking away from the faith. Even Jesus, so that's the Holy Spirit saying this. And Jesus says this as well in Matthew chapter 24, um, likely talking about the end times. He says in verse 9 through 10, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all for my, for all nations for my sake. could be almost any age, right? Then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Apostasy is expected. That's not something that we look forward to. It's not something that we want to happen, but it's something that we must be real about. We have to take scripture at its word. We have to take Jesus and the Holy Spirit at their word when they say that there will be those who fall away from the true faith. Apostasy is expected because false converts exist. Why should we expect people to fall away? Because there are people probably here in this room who have experienced all the things we've experienced, may have even walked an aisle, may have even prayed a prayer, but there is no true faith. False converts exist. Matthew 13, verses 36 through 43, uh, Eric brought this up. He's talking about the, uh, the wheat and the tares. And this is the explanation of that passage that Jesus gives. Then he left the crowds and went into the house and the disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. So much I would like to dig into that. Anyway, um, the the weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. 
In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. If you remember the parable, there was seed that was thrown out, that was sown. And then in the evening, in the nighttime, the enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. And the reapers didn't know what to do. How, what, what are we going to do? We've got, we've got tares amongst the wheat. And Jesus says, the master says to them, just wait, wait till the end, wait till the harvest and we'll take care of it. Matthew chapter seven, maybe the even more perfect answer from Christ on this. Verses 21 through 23, we've mentioned it a lot lately. Probably have it memorized. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. What are they saying? Lord, Lord. It's interesting to me that these people even themselves believe that they are followers of Christ. We're calling you master, master. Yeah, I claim the name of Jesus. In fact, look at all the good things that I've done, right? Many, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? It's a very interesting phrase here. And Jesus declared, Jesus said to them, I will declare to them, I never knew you. That's a very important small word. He didn't say, I knew you for a little while, but you walked away from me. He said, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 1 John 2, 19 says this, they went out from us, which means they were with us. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Pretty clear, right? If they were really part of us, they would have stayed with us, but they went out from us. Why? Because they were not part of us. They were with us, but they weren't part of us. But they went out. Why? That it might become plain that they all are not of us. False converts exist. They're drawn away by false teaching. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3. We started with verse 1 uh, already. It says that they will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So they are pulled away by false teaching. 2 Peter 3, 15 through 17. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote that you according to wisdom, to the wis- wrote to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all of his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. What's, he, what's the warning? You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Instability comes from false teaching. Galatians 1, 6-9, Paul writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and, turning, and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, now so I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Apostasy is expected because false converts exist. They are led away by false teaching or revealed through 
testing. Luke 8, 13. This is speaking of the soils parable. The ones on the rock were those who, when they heard the word, received it with joy. Sounds like our people in Hebrews 6, does it not? They received the word with joy. This is great. This is amazing. I want to be a part of this. What happened? But these have no root. These have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. When life gets hard, when the experiences die down, when they they no longer uh, get the things that they think they should get out of Christianity, the reality of their lack of true faith is revealed and they fall away. They have no substance. If, if you continue reading on, when it talks about the good, the good soil, what does it say? It says that they receive the word and they bear fruit, right? Going back to our first point, true faith is evidenced by fruit. The overwhelming reality of scripture is that there are those who will fall away from the faith who looked like they were part of the body of Christ, but in fact never were. We should not be surprised by that. We should be saddened, but we should not be surprised. Listen to the confidence very quickly that the Apostle John gives us in 1 John. I'm going to read through these super fast, hopefully. 1 John 2, 3, And by this we know that we have come to know him. Listen to these words. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So we have a way of knowing. Verses five through six, but whosoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. We can know now we are in Christ by these things. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him, there is no cause for stumbling. Verses 23 through 25, no one who denies the son has the father. Whoever confesses the son has the father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the son and in the father. Sound like Hebrews? Don't drift away from what you have heard. All right. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Verses 28 through 29. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practiced righteousness righteousness has been born of him. Beloved, chapter three, verse two, we are God's children now. This is a time statement. We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. There is confidence that even now we are redeemed. John 3, 1 John 3, 9 through 10, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides currently in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God. We can see who are God's children and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. By this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Ephesians chapter one, the Holy Spirit is our guarantee of the future hope. Chapter four, verse six, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of of error. Finally, chapter 5 verses 12 through 13, whoever has the son has life. Not might have life, has life. 
Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Amen? Bodhi Bauckham says, if I could lose my salvation, I most certainly would. We are sinful people. Even as believers, we are left with the flesh. And the flesh wars against the spirit. Very quickly, and I'm going to go a little bit over time, I apologize. But I just want to note a few things that we see in Scripture that if we could lose or forfeit our salvation, things would radically be different. If we could lose or forfeit our salvation, the rejoicing of angels over our repentance would have been premature. Ever thought about that? Jesus said when he's talking about the, the shepherd going out to find the sheep, says the angels rejoice at one who repents. A little premature, guys. This one fell away. That's not the evidence of Scripture. If we could lose or forfeit our salvation, God's adoption of us as children would be nullified. God chooses to adopt us as his children. And yet if we fall away, if, if it were true that we could forfeit or lose our salvation, his adoption of us would be nullified. By what greater law? By ourselves? By our awesome power? If we could lose or forfeit our salvation, Christ's bloody sacrifice would be a wasted gesture. His sacrifice for you would be wasted. If we could lose or forfeit our salvation, the Spirit would have to be removed from us and we would no longer have a guarantee or a comforter. If we could lose or forfeit our salvation, we would have to go from spiritual death to spiritual life back to spiritual death. Because if we had it, then we had it. And if we don't, then we don't. If we could lose or forfeit our salvation, we would be justified in one moment and recondemned in another. If we could lose or forfeit our salvation, we would have been taken out of the domain of darkness only to be cast back into it. Yet when you read scripture, you will not find one area of scripture that says any of those things have ever happened or will ever happen or even a hypothetical possibility. Rather, what we read is that there is a steadfast hope. What we read is that there is enduring faith that produces fruit that is in keeping with repentance. That's what we read in Scripture. That is the testimony of the Word of God. That true faith endures with fruit. Are you thankful for salvation this morning? Maybe you're here this morning and you, you have walked an aisle, you have prayed a prayer, but you're living life on your own terms. When you examine the fruit of your life, you say, you know, I don't, I don't see a whole lot of good fruit. I see myself following after my own desires. You should seriously consider whether or not you are in the faith. Because true faith will have evident fruit. True faith will endure. True faith will not apostatize. Father, thank you that we are not the authors of faith. Father, thank you that our faith is rooted and grounded in the word of God as Romans 10 tells us that our faith comes by hearing and hearing from your word. Thank you that our faith is not, is not held by our own understanding, but not held by our own um, desires, but it is faith simply 
in Jesus Christ and what he has done. And Lord, as we think of these believers in Hebrews who were often pushed and pulled to go back to their cultural faith, to go back to all the rituals and, and things that we, we look at today and we say, no, that, that's, that's wrong. And yet, Lord, how quick are we so often to go back to the things that please us? We go back to our own outward fruits instead of spiritual fruit. We pursue man's rules instead of your rules. And we look at ourselves and we see ourselves as self-righteous, as, as being worthy of salvation in some way. And yet, Lord, we know that we are not. We are not worthy of even your thought. And yet you have given us your love. You have sent your son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life so that he could be a perfect sacrifice once for all. Then you raised him from the dead so that we could have hope and victory through him. Lord, we thank you for adopting us. We thank you for making us your children. We thank you for all the blessings and wonder that come with that. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here this morning that does not know that, that does not know you, that you would open their eyes, even if they have prayed a prayer or walked an aisle, they've said certain words, they, they, they know all the right things to say. Lord, I pray that if they are not a true believer, that you would open their eyes to the reality of their soul this morning. That you would use your word to examine them. That it would cut deep and that it would reveal who we are. As we think about you and we think about what Christ has done, we rejoice that we do not have a hope that is dead, but we have a hope that is alive. We praise you this morning because of it. In Jesus' name, amen.